Welcome to futureofuschinatrade.com. I'm Molly Castellazzo, and I'm joined by one of our expert commentators, Michael Pettis. Michael is a senior associate at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a finance professor at Peking University, where he specializes in Chinese financial markets. In our conversation, Michael argues that China needs to switch its growth model from one dependent on investment and trade surplus to one driven by domestic consumption. Yet that transition will be a difficult one, and there isn't yet consensus in Beijing that now is the time. It's very difficult to change the rules of the game when you're winning, Michael says. Now, to our telephone discussion. So maybe to start off, would you mind telling me a little bit about your background and your experience in China? Um, yeah, I, I spent most of my career on the fixed income side on, um, on Wall Street, um, specializing uh, particularly in Latin America. I started my career during the Latin American debt crisis and, um, and was very involved in sort of developing that whole market. And I moved to China about uh, uh, early 2001, <clears throat> just on a holiday, spent a week here, and was so blown away by the place that I decided to quit my job and move out here for two years and teach finance while I was working. I had been on the side teaching at the Columbia Business School. Um, uh, so the plan was to come here for two years, and two years have become nine years, and right. nine years, I hope, will become 20 years. What, what enamored you so much, you know, that, that first holiday with China? Um, the fact that it was changing so quickly and uh, uh, so dramatically and that it was such a big, you know, such a big event, um, I think you don't get that many times, uh, you're lucky if you get one time in your lifetime to see such a transformation taking place on a global scale. And um, it just seemed to me a very, very exciting thing to be part of. I've been very lucky because I've taught at the top two universities in China, first uh, Tsinghua University for four years and then now at uh, Peking University. <clears throat> and uh, these are really the elite schools and the students that I've been able to work with are uh, pretty much the top students, the students who are being groomed for positions uh, uh, in leadership, whether it's in uh, finance or government or business or culture or whatever. And that's made it all the more exciting because we're seeing this massive change take place. And, um, and I've been lucky enough to teach some of the young men and women who I think are going to be leading this process in the next 20 to 30 years. It's, you know, as you talk, I just, I'm so excited to hear your, your vision for the future of, of trade between China and the United States, because it, it really does sound like you are on the forefront of, of that change there in China. Um, so, you know, we, we had set up these three scenarios um, to kind of guide the discussion. In the first scenario, Bob Middlestat imagines a future of of free trade where trade is really unfettered and, and both the United States and China compete um, purely on their comparative advantages. And then Clyde Prestowitz imagines a future where America really takes a competitiveness stance um, and and works to reverse the erosion of, of uh, of its 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 economic power, and China focuses more on on growth led by domestic demand. 
And then finally in the third scenario, Art Blakemore envisions a convergence of, of, uh, of growth rates. Um, the U.S. continues to grow on trend. And China sort of moves through the catch-up phase and, and eventually becomes a, uh, a developed economy. What 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 are your I guess first you know what are your thoughts on on those scenarios and and second I'd ask you what your own vision is of of you know of the future of of the interaction between these two countries. Well, I think it's going to be um, very very mixed. Um, that's sort of a, a cliche. Um, there are a lot of things in which the two countries uh, are going to want to work together, in fact, have to work together, and there are going to be a lot of sources of tension and conflict. Um, what I think, though, is that there is a tendency abroad, and it's starting to actually affect some people within China, although they've resisted this for a long time, there's a tendency to overestimate the trajectory uh, of, of Chinese growth. Um, China has some really, really deep problems, so probably some of the worst imbalances that we've ever seen in economic history, certainly in modern economic history. Imbalances similar to what Japan was going through in the 1980s, but in a, in a much more exaggerated way. And that's not to say that, that there are no major differences. Of course, there are major differences. But basically, China has got itself caught up in a growth model which relies desperately on two things for growth. One is increased investment, and China entered the crisis with the highest investment rate perhaps in recorded history, and probably already a significant misallocation of that investment. It responded to the crisis with a massive increase in investment to levels that are totally unprecedented and almost certainly going to result in significant destruction of value. Um, but it's completely addicted to this investment growth. The other big source of growth, of course, is the trade surplus. Um, China has a very, very high trade surplus, and it's hoping to grow its trade surplus even further. I have an article that will be coming out on Monday in the Financial Times, which is going to argue that the, the dynamics between the three major trade surplus countries, uh, Germany, uh, um, uh, Japan, and China, and the two major trade deficit uh, entities, which are the United States and Trade Deficit Europe, are extremely ugly, and we are almost hurtling towards um, a real trade conflict in the next year or so. And that's going to be very important. How that happens and how China resolves that is going to be very important for longer-term Chinese development, because China needs to switch its growth model. Um, but in order to do it, it needs to do so very slowly. It waited way too long before switching. A number of people within uh, in Beijing had been arguing as far back as 2003 that it was urgently necessary to switch the growth model. But of course, it's very difficult to switch. It's very difficult to change the rules of the game when you're winning. Right. Um, and uh, so nothing happened. Um, now it's more urgent than ever, and I think there is widespread consensus that they need to change the growth model. The problem is that it's politically very, very difficult to do so. And even, ha even if they do develop the consensus, and decide to start taking the necessary steps today, and I think it's unlikely that they'll take the necessary steps before 2012, but even if they did so today, it's probably going to take at least eight to ten years of, of adjusting the model. Um, but in the meantime, they are still heavily reliant on 
ex, uh, exporting the, the excess of what they produce. Um, and that means that the rest of the world needs to accommodate the Chinese adjustment over eight to 10 years. And I would argue that the appetite in the U.S. has diminished considerably and that the, the U.S. is probably looking for a three, four, five-year adjustment period. And of course, in trade deficit Europe, it has nothing to do with appetite. They're undergoing a financial crisis, which I would argue has only just begun, and it's going to mean a collapse in their trade deficits because, of course, if they can't finance trade, the trade deficits, they can't run trade deficits. So I'm not sure the world is going to give enough time for China to make the adjustment. And, and depending on how that takes place and depending on the Chinese reaction, um, you know, there are many different ways this, 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 uh, this game can, can develop. So if, if, if the, the world then, if Europe and the United States won't tolerate, I guess, uh, uh, an eight to 10 year adjustment, what, what happens then? Well, um, what happens is that China is going to be forced to rebalance one way or the other. Um, the, the good way would be if we could get consumption to surge and drag GDP growth behind it. For many years, China's had the opposite position of the U.S., whereas in the U.S., consumption grew faster than GDP and debt levels ran up. In China, GDP grew faster than consumption. Mm-hmm. Um, and debt levels also ran up, but it was debt to the producing sector, not to the uh, not the consumers. Um, if the United States reverses, and if we start seeing consumption growth lower than GDP growth, then China, you know, unless the rest of the world can replace the U.S., which is very unlikely, then China has no choice but to see its own reversal, where a GDP growth rather than be substantially greater than consumption growth. In other words. Rather than have consumption growth, the absolute bottom of the GDP growth range, it will now be the absolute top. GDP growth will be less than consumption growth. The good way is if we can get consumption to surge, that's going to be very difficult. Um, There's a lot of foolish thinking about how we can get consumption in China to surge. And the skeptics like me for five years have been saying it ain't going to work, it ain't going to work. And since then, consumption as a share of GDP has just declined to truly alarming levels. so I don't think that's going to happen. The alternative is the way that the Japanese did it. Consumption growth actually slowed down, but GDP growth slowed down a lot more. So in, in, in Japan, they rebalanced GDP growth, uh, rather consumption growth outpaced GDP growth at very low levels. And I'm afraid that that's the more likely scenario for China, that we're going to see a significant slowdown in GDP growth as they make the adjustment towards more of a uh, domestic consumption economy. Okay. So when you talk about the the particular steps that China would have to take to change um, to change that model, what or, you know to, to to change that sort of consumption GDP ratio? What are some of those steps? Well, the problem is you know there's all sorts of nonsense about. Consumption in China is low because the Chinese don't like to consume, or because they're Confucians, or because of the sex imbalance, or all this other kind of stuff. The fact is, consumption in China is relatively high. It's decent as a share of household income. The key is household income. That's been declining as a share of GDP. And as long as that declines as a share of GDP, it's not surprising that consumption is declining as a share of GDP. In addition, there's been this huge inequality of income. 
In fact, a recent study put out by Credit Suisse suggests that income, household income, uh, has been understated uh, to something like 10% of GDP, but the distribution of the income is much, much worse than any of us thought. Um, and as you know, the rich don't really consume. They consume a very small share of their income. So it turns out that these very low consumption numbers that we saw for China may be overestimating consumption as a share of GDP by as much as 10%. It's even lower than these astonishingly low numbers. So if you want to get consumption up, you've got to raise the uh, household share of national income. And there's sort of two ways of doing it. There's the one-off, relatively easy way, although it'll be politically very difficult, and that is increase household wealth through a massive transfer of, of ownership of government assets to the household sector. It can be done directly, it can be done indirectly by privatizing the assets and then using the proceeds to clean up the banking system, or it can be done by transferring ownership of the assets to the pension funds. Uh, there are a lot of different ways of doing it. Um, but that's one way you can get a huge boost in, um, in household wealth and therefore a huge boost in consumption. But of course there are big political ramifications. It means giving up significant levers of, of control. The, the more appropriate and sustainable way of doing it is reversing the mechanisms that have systematically subsidized growth and, and forced the household sector to pay for those subsidies in the form of various hidden taxes. There are many such mechanisms, but the three most important, one of them is widely discussed, and that's the undervalued exchange rate that, that reduces the real value of household income and subsidizes uh, manufacturers in the tradable goods sector. The other has been uh, uh, wage growth that has been much slower than productivity growth, even with the recent wage hikes recently. Um, and of course, that simply takes money from workers and subsidizes employers. But the most powerful of all the mechanisms has been financial repression. Um, the vast bulk of savings are in the form of uh, bank deposits, and the vast bulk of corporate financing is in the form of bank loans. And uh, interest rates are kept at extremely low rates. In fact, uh, depositors have been receiving negative real rates for most of the past decade. And these very low rates are a huge subsidy for capital users, which are uh, real estate developers, uh, state-owned enterprises, local, provincial, and central governments, um, infrastructure investors, etc., uh, at the expense of the net savers, which are the household sector. My estimate is that every year between 5 and 10% of GDP is transferred from the household sector in the form of a subsidy to users of capital every single year. Um, so if you really want to raise nationally, if you really want to raise household income, you've got to reverse these three mechanisms. But you can't do it quickly because Chinese, um, especially large Chinese corporations, are incredibly inefficient. And they're only able to survive because of these massive subsidies, uh, the, the uh, undervalued currency, the very low wages, and most of all, extremely cheap and, uh, capital and socialized credit risk. So if you eliminate these things very quickly, you'd see a surge in bankruptcies which would lead to a rise in unemployment, which would actually lead, lead to a decline in consumption. Mm -hmm. So you've got to do it very slowly. In, in theory, you raise the value of the currency, you raise interest rates, and you raise wages. As you do so, China loses international competitiveness, and it loses foreign clients, but it replaces them one for one with domestic household consumption. You know, that's the theory, but it's very hard to do that. Uh, the only thing that I think I can say with some confidence 
is that it can't be done quickly. It's going to take at least eight to ten years, if we're lucky, to uh, to do that in a way that's not horribly disruptive. Right. It it almost sounds like. China's really dramatic um, economic growth was built on sort of a house of cards that is is really unsustainable. Yes, it's it's certainly unsustainable, and, and there's many there's many similar cases. If you look at the the first time the word miracle was applied to a rapidly growing economy, I believe it was Brazil in the 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s when it was growing 10, 11 percent a year. And the way the Brazilians achieved it is they had very explicit uh, taxes on the household sector, very high income taxes, the proceeds of which were used to subsidize this massive infrastructure push. And Brazil got tremendous growth. But the problem with that is that the growth was externally driven and investment driven. And because risk was driven by the government and credit risk was socialized and the cost of capital was very low, you quickly hit a point where you started getting massive misallocated capital and excessive reliance on the external sector. Brazil went through their adjustment that was called the last decade of the 1980s. Um, another example was, uh, was Japan. Japan, the Japanese model is basically the model that most of East Asia, including China, has followed, except China has done, done so in a very um, uh, um, you know, pumped up way. Mm-hmm. Um, and we saw the same thing in Japan. Japan was overly reliant on the export surplus and on uh, investment. It responded to the 1987 crisis in the U.S. with an increase in investment from what was already extremely high rates. And it got some tremendous growth because whenever you increase investment, you will get growth today. But if the in- investment is misallocated, you give back more than 100% of that growth in the future. And, uh, and so Japan had its own lost decade in the 1990s. And, you know, you can argue that they still haven't really emerged from that last decade. Um, so the, the historical precedence for this very rapid growth caused by a massive transfer of income from the household sector to subsidize especially investment is, is not very good. You can achieve tremendous growth, but you have to know when to stop and to switch the model, the growth model. And so far, no one's been able to do that at the right time. Everybody has waited too long. And it seems to me clear that China has also waited too long. I see. Is so, if we think about how China, you know, sort of the shortish term future as as a lost decade. After that, is the future brighter? I mean, can they emerge from the lost decade and still? continue growing and advancing and eventually become, you know, in terms of per capita GDP, uh, a member of the, what Ed Prescott would call the club of developed economies? Well, you know, that's a a political and social question more than an economic question. Um, There are many cases of countries that have had very rapid investment-driven growth that then hit their, um, their difficult adjustment period and never got through. And then there are many other cases uh, of, of countries that did that and did get through. Um, you know, Japan is a rich country. Mm-hmm. The United States went through that, too. Um, we're, we're not really sure why certain countries go through the difficult patch and then regain growth and other countries don't. Um, 
and I suspect that has as much to do with uh, politics and, and social structures and institutional structures as, as anything else. My guess is that China is going to continue growing faster than the rest of the world for many more years. It will not be like Japan and Brazil's last decade of zero or negative growth. It'll probably be much lower levels of about three, four, five, six percent levels of growth. Uh, so it's still going to grow faster than the world. I'm very skeptical about the argument that uh, I guess there is a race on among global financial institutions to announce the earliest possible date at which China will become the world's largest economy. Um, I believe Goldman Sachs is at 19, is at 2027. Somebody else is at 2020. I think that's all nonsense. I think it's going to take much longer than that. Um, But, uh, but China will grow faster than the rest of the world for the next 20, 30, 40 years, probably. Um, and its share of the global economy will grow. But remember, you know, we all talk about China overtaking Japan, and that seems like a really big thing. But we have to be a little bit careful. Japan was about 7% of the world in, um, in, in 1970. By 1980, it had raced forward to 10% of the world. By the early 1990s, it was 17 to 18% of the world. It's now going to be overtaken by China at around 8 to 9% of the world. So um, when we think about China as the second largest economy, it's not bigger than Japan back when Japan was uh, two-thirds the size of the United States. Ch Japan has given back its relative share in the last 20 years It's given back almost everything that it had gained in the previous 20 years. So, you know, for me, the story of China overtaking Japan is partly the rise of China, but even more, it's the collapse of Japan. And I think sometimes we forget that. Right. Um, so it's a rockier story. That doesn't mean that China is going to fail. Every successful country has gone through very, very difficult periods. Um, But to assume that China cannot go through a difficult period is, is just silly. Of course, it, of course it will. Is there a willingness? I, I know that you talked about, you know, some of the, the, the changes to the model being politically untenable. But is there a general willingness to confront these issues and to really well, to transition to... There's a real debate going on. Um, there are people who are, you know, in, in, in some sense much darker than I am about it, who have been arguing for much longer that, um, that, that urgent change is needed. Um, the problem is it's a little bit like the United States in 1930, where the more internationalists, including President Hoover and most leading economists and bankers, understood that the balance of payments constraints on the U.S., made an adjustment very, very difficult. And then the domestic constituencies, who didn't really understand that, but they were, you know, the bulk of the political power. Um, and China's going through that, too. You have constituencies around the, the central bank, around the, the banking regulators, the so-called Shanghai faction, um, who really understand, and certainly in many of the think tanks and universities, who really understand how difficult the adjustment process is likely to be. And there are even some fairly powerful people who understand that. There's some evidence that Premier Wen understands it. Um, but until there is a crisis, it's very difficult 
to convince and develop a consensus among the SOE heads and the provincial and municipal authority uh, leaders and the, um, the, you know, the people from the Communist Youth League who under Hu Jintao have been, have been very powerful, for them to understand the, the, the meaning of the global imbalances and why they're likely to be so disruptive. So there is a real debate going on here, but for the moment, it's not clear to me that a consensus has yet developed about how urgent the need for change is. Everybody agrees that China needs to adjust and rebalance. But so far, it seems to me that the argument is we need to rebalance without giving up growth. They're, they haven't recognized that rebalancing is going to require a significant contraction in growth. I that see. there's simply no way of getting one without the other. Is it fair to say that it's, it's in everyone's interest that China moves successfully through this period of, of rebalancing? Of course. Um, you know, in the short term, there's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of reasons, good reasons, perhaps, for the U.S. to engage in a much more, in a much tougher trade position. The truth is, and economists don't often like to say this, is that a rapid contraction in trade, in international trade, can actually be expansionary for deficit countries. It's very de debilitating for surplus countries. But over the longer term, most of the really big problems that the world faces are going to require Chinese participation. And that's, you know, that's without even saying that most of the big problems are basically going to be resolved by the U.S. and China. But even if it's more than that, it's going to require Chinese participation whether we're talking about global warming or nuclear proliferation or global terrorism or um, the, uh, the water crisis facing the world or you name it, there's a number of them. And so from that point of view, what, we, what is not good for the world is a hostile uh, and distrustful China. Remember that in the 1920s, the United States was very reluctant to join um, uh, multinational, multilateral agreements. It refused to join the League of Nations. It refused to join the uh, BIS because there was the sense of distrust towards Europe. And I think almost everybody would agree today that the refusal of the U.S. to participate in these, um, in these uh, uh, global organizations um, probably made things much worse than they needed to have been, uh, probably economically and certainly politically. And I would say the same thing is true today. It's not really going to help us over the long term to have a mistrustful um, China um, that sees participation in, in, in global institutions as an attempt to, uh, to uh, shackle China. Um, so from that point of view, a very difficult adjustment in China is going to be bad for the world. A very, or a, a minimally difficult adjustment is going to be much better uh, for the whole world and for the U.S. Uh, over the long term. It's not clear to me that that's what we're going to do but it is pretty clear to me that that's what we ought to do.